We are here with Professor Zuleta. Um, very happy to have you on the podcast. You were unable to t to actually be present physically in ICA, but by the glory of technological advancements and COVID, we you were able to attend virtually. Uh, thank you for being here. No, thank you, Brian, for the invitation. Very happy to be here. And where are you now? I know you have your your location in many different parts of the world. <laughs> I'm now for a few days in Colombia just because of a uh, 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 family matter with, with my wife. But um, I hope to be back on the road in like three weeks or so. Amazing. And for those who are, only, it's only listening because it's just an audio podcast, but you have one of the most impressive backgrounds I've uh, seen in my thousands <laughs> of, <laughs> that is quite the collection. I'm a, I'm a reader and my, my three sons are, desperate readers they they read a lot so <laughs> what you see in the back is basically of course uh books related to arbitration and law international law in general plus history they have a son that is a historian and a, and a lawyer uh, okay. books on uh, communication and journalist which is one of the uh issues of my other son and and uh, then the last one is uh philosophy which is the key subject of my youngest son, even though he's not a philosopher, but a graphic designer, but he he reads a lot. So, so very this interesting. Is, this is a house where everybody reads a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, to launch into this segment, your the your uh, topic at ECA was the regional themes panel, and that and you specifically were on the panel talking about the Americas and Europe and from obviously where you are now and from your history, I presume you're talking, you talked about the Americas. The The scope was quite broad. So I just would like you to lead us in on what you specifically addressed at the Congress. Okay, the, the first thing that I addressed, even though the, the, the time was very short, it was just like 12 minutes and to put some good ideas in 12 minutes requires a lot of effort. It's, yes. it's simpler to walk about, to talk about uh, or for about an hour, an hour and a half. You can say whatever, but uh, in 12 minutes. But basically, uh, what I did was first to address what is the concept of Americas, because the U.S. has basically appropriated the name, and I think that's not that's fair. Very true. Uh, the second thing that happened and that I put in, into the frame is that uh, Latin America is not a geographical term, it's a political term, and it was created by the French just to justify what they call the, the Latin attitude of, of this part of the, of the uh, country, of the uh, continent, and then probably to justify a bit the invasion of Mexico at the time with uh, Maximilian and Carlota and, and right. et cetera. The, the next thing was to go a bit to the history of why uh, the constitutions and populism have played a significant role in the development of arbitration in the region. And uh, to make a distinction, because everybody is speaking about investment arbitration and the relationship between investment arbitration and the Constitution. In Latin America, there is some interaction. Uh, there are decisions from the constitutional courts, such as the case of Ecuador, that based on uh, constitutional grounds, they denounce uh, the BITs and the exit convention. They, 
the decision from the Constitutional Court of Colombia that for the first time reviewed the merits and the, the basic grounds of, of a, a bilateral investment treaty. But uh, I then switched to what is the true subject matter in Latin America, which is international commercial arbitration and how the constitution has deeply affected international commercial arbitration. Okay. Uh, first, because uh, many countries decided to uh, elevate arbitration to a constitutional level for different reasons. But the end result is, is, is a sort of a disaster. Some jurisdictions like Costa Rica, for example, included arbitration in the constitution as a fundamental right. Oh, and in the other extreme of the scope is Colombia that included um, arbitration in the constitution as part of the judiciary, as part of the judicial branch. So the effects are totally opposite. And as a result of that, we have a huge intervention of the constitutional courts in arbitration in, a, in many jurisdictions, particularly, I would say, Mexico and Colombia are the leaders. But you see uh, these sort of actions in Peru, in Ecuador and elsewhere. So uh, basically, um, the question, the, the basic question, and basically the conclusion of the panel is one, uh, there are many people talking about, many lawyers, and many practitioners in Latin America talking about, and even in Europe and the US, talking about what they call constitutionalization of arbitration. To me, that does not exist. Mm -hmm. uh, constitutionalization means that you have a broad, uh, subject the principles uh, that in which everybody agrees at an international level but here this is not this is not constitutionalization this is this is a way invented to create or to have a second bite at the apple mm -hmm. and have amparo constitutional actions uh, to affect arbitration so that was first second conclusion uh, there are no good amparos or bad amparos or bad and good constitutional injunctions they should not exist at all and the third conclusion was a proposal for ICA to have a very active role in the region uh, as, as an observer and, and try to intervene as amicus curiae in key decisions of the courts that may change the, the scope of arbitration uh, with recommendations or anything of that sort in, in jurisdictions where uh, laws are being divided to, to amend the arbitration. So at the end, it was a sort of a cry out for, for ICA to, to Very good. assist to assist in the matter. Can I bring you back to one of your first points, which is just about how the how arbitration got put into these constitutions? And for example, you said Costa Rica said it was a human right. What what is the philosophical or or, or constitutional basis that they say that it was a human right? No, it, no, it's not a human right. I, I, oh. I maybe I, no, it's a fundamental right. A it's fundamental a right. right. Yeah, it's a fundamental right. It's a fundamental right. It was a, it was a. Another thing is, it's a fundamental right. So, so uh, constitution uh, arbitration being a fundamental right, uh, it means that is at least at the same level of other fundamental rights in the constitution, and that what you have to decide is whether, of course, some basic fundamental rights, the rights, the right to life, mm -hmm. uh, the right to health. Uh, have a superior uh, hierarchy within the constitution, but it, it is difficult that arbitration itself would affect such type of rights. So right. having arbitration as a fundamental right avoids 
that sort of discussion. And of course, makes Costa Rica a, a, a good site for, for arbitration. Right. It, but was it, I'm, I'm trying to understand, is it just the, the, um, the right to have your disputes resolved by um, a tribunal of your choosing or what was what is kind of the rationale yeah, the right is the right of the parties to uh submit to a tribunal or a panel of their choosing disputes between the parties so mm -hmm. that the parties have that particular right and uh the constitution provides number one for that right but number two it has a provision saying that there is no constitutional injunction against judicial decisions. Mm -hmm. And the courts of Costa Rica have interpreted that to mean that that includes arbitration awards. I see. So uh, in, in the totally opposite side of the scope, in the case of Colombia, for example, if you have a uh, constitutional provision that says that arbitration is part of the judiciary, that means that in addition to the um, action to set aside the award, you can you have an additional action, a constitutional action mm -hmm. that in the case of Colombia, in certain limited cases, would allow you to go as uh, extreme as requesting the court to review the merits of the order. I see. And uh, the problem there is that uh, if if it's part of the judiciary, then the arbitrators are judges. If the arbitrators are judges, their decisions could compromise the international uh, responsibility of the state. Right. It's, it's a mess. It's a mess. Right. The panel discussed the the intersection between constitutionalism and populism, and I, I presume that these um, the constitutionality of arbitration itself has been questioned in recent times. What is that? How does that intersect with populism? Does it intersect with populism? Uh, what what has motivated this this change? It it does to, to some extent because um, part of the debate that is being uh, taken in arbitration derives number one from claims against arbitration, questioning arbitration, but not from a technical side, but more from a purely political side, and sometimes to get to get political gains. So. Uh, Somebody, uh, a, a ministry, a president, even a president, uh, directors of, of um, agencies. Uh, you see the European Union, what is happening there right. nowadays. So uh, there are a number of times in which the decision is not the result or the uh, attack to arbitration is not the result of a purely technical mm -hmm. discussion, a purely legal discussion, but a political discussion. Now, it is difficult to separate the things in the case of investment arbitration because investment arbitration has a political component. Right. Whether you like it or not, but it does have a political component. So it's an area where populism and uh, attacks that are not based on, on, on true data, that are not based on facts, but are based on uh, speeches that would uh, make the, the individual the writer, the speaker, uh, gain either votes or support. Right. So, so it is it is used in that way, and there are reforms that result from that sort of, of thing, mm -hmm. and not from a really technical uh, review or technical decision to enhance arbitration and to protect whatever it has to be protected. 
Right. And in the panel that was in parallel to yours about Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, uh, a panelist coming from Nigeria discussed kind of a similar issue. And it was the trend was led by Africa being respondent states or an African state within the continent being a respondent state and how these large damages award were coming down. And that led to a lot of people retreating into litigation, but also having a negative perception about arbitration in general. Um, and so there was kind of a, I, I guess you could say a parallel crisis that was driven by investment awards against states um, having to use their their tax monies to defend it. Yeah, that, that's, that's a key point. And uh, there the issue is what are, the first question is what are awards against the state? It's just a matter of the amount that the state has to pay. Mm -hmm. Or I can give you an example. Let's assume an award that decides that the state is internationally liable for a very grave and serious breach of a treaty, but the damages were not proven. Mm -hmm. So that statistically would be, quote unquote, a, an award in, against the state, I'm sorry, in favor of the state. But in practice, it is not. Right. And it is not because, because uh, the, the, the state being held internationally liable is, is in itself a, a very serious thing. That's number one. And number two, which derives from that, is where do the statistics come from to say, for example, that states lose more cases than investors, that investors get the money. I remember uh, a number of years ago, uh, a, a um, Mexican lawyer who was in the, the defense team in Mexico, he was questioned about that matter. And the math he did was totally different from what we hear. He said, okay, we so far we have received decisions against our state for X millions but we have received in, in investments for eight billions. Right. So in the balance, in the balance, this is this is a game game. Of course, if we if we sign treaties, we have to lose some battles. The cost of doing uh, business, yeah. But it's the cost of doing business. Right. And and then to your final uh point, which was the call to arms for ICA to potentially submit Amicus Curiae, what kind of specific points do you see that ICA could provide? an aid to the tribunals uh, as amicus? There are two things. Uh, number one, ICA is, in a, is a, in a very good position to do that. Number one, because of it is in itself a very respected worldwide think tank. It had created, it's not just a, an abstract thing, it had created uh, products to call them somehow publications, uh, very key documents such as, for example, the manual for the judges to, to deal with the New York Convention, which has right. been, it's been a fantastic tool. So it, it is a well-respected institution. And the second thing is that when the amicus curiae or the opinions or the intervention uh, with the uh, legislative comes from arbitral institutions, there is somebody always saying, well, yeah, they're intervening because there's an interest, because they want right. the business, because they want to get money, so they want to be here. ICA does not have the problem. They mm -hmm. do not administer an arbitration institution. They do not appoint arbitrators. So, so they're the perfect uh, think tank to do this. 
In Latin America, there is a, 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 a Latin American Arbitration Association, and it has uh, an observatory. And what the observatory does is precisely that, an observatory and the observatory does not manage any institution or arbitral centers or anything. And uh, what, what the observatory does is precisely that. File an amicus curiae before the court of uh, Peru. Uh, for example, in Peru, there was a, a very well-known case in which a very well-respected arbitrator was uh, put to jail as a result of a, I would say, more political than, than legal decision. Mm -hmm. He was highly debated. He was in jail for, for a while. And the observatory and, and, and the Latin American Arbitration Association intervened. Tarika did the same and IBA did the same. And the end result was very good. I see. Well, then, yeah, it's a call to arms that's already been in in, in the works. So I guess it's just to, to develop even more. Right. And coming, putting your, as a final thought, um, coming from putting your Colombian hat on, um, <laughs> and given that you're in Colombia and your firm, um, what... How do you see, is there any sort of movement within the community to kind of combat this, what, what we've determined to be a mess in the jurisdiction? Or is there, is there are we just reacting to what's happening now and then the, the movement to change will, will happen later? There, there, in the case of Colombia, with my Colombian hat, there, there are, in my view, two problems. Problem number one is that we are, I would say, the extreme dualism in arbitration. If you do practice local arbitration and want to jump into international arbitration, it is almost impossible because they're totally, completely different. Oh, interesting. Uh, local arbitration is like a judicial proceeding with a right to have coffee and <laughs> and good fruit, but that's it. It's, it's, it's a purely judicial proceeding. So that's one problem that is being uh, dealt with now. And there is a sort of a clash of generations there. There's, there's an old generation of lawyers who want to defend uh, national arbitration uh, at all costs. Right. There's a new generation that is either trained in international arbitration or uh, wanting to go to international arbitration and realizing that if they are trained in local arbitration, they will never have a market other than the local arbitration Colombian market. Right. And second, there is a decision to submit amicus curiae to the constitutional court to see if in the course of reading and reading and reading amicus curiae and debates, they, they change the course mm -hmm. and uh, decide that, that there is no uh, constitutional action against awards issued in international arbitrations based in Colombia. I think you've hit something that was mentioned quite a few times in, in the other panel as well, which is about training um, in, in some of these jurisdictions that are newly becoming involved in as players in international arbitration, commercial or investment, that these lawyers need to be trained. They need to receive training. Something like ICA could provide training um, and that would allow everyone to realize how the process works and, and how it interacts with the more local litigation or domestic arbitration procedures? Yeah, we we, did, we, we had an experiment during the pandemia, the, the, the COVID, and it was a great success. Uh, what we did is we asked uh, like 40 practitioners, the key players in arbitration worldwide to record a class on a, on a specific subject. 
And then we launched that as a, a diploma on international arbitration. Amazing. Uh, with uh, the Latin American Arbitration Association and the Chamber of Commerce of Medellin, they were extremely helpful. And it was a great success. We had uh, 100 plus people register. We had to stop at a given point in time and said, well, there's going to be a second one that is going <laughs> to take place next year. But it's a great success because you have the opportunity to see the key players talking about key things in international arbitration and do the course at your at your pace. So, so that is key. I would say the training is important. But again, if you start training people from local arbitration and then moving into international arbitration, right. that would never change. I think it would have to be the opposite. What's the name of your course for some of our younger listeners that may want to apply? It's international is an international international arbitration, uh, but but you you can contact um, the Chamber of Commerce of Medellin. Perfect. You, in, on the website, you you get all the information there, and we'll put a link in the description of the of the podcast. Okay, I, I'll send you. I, I can send you the link of the of the courses so that you can because it, it was a great success, and we have we had people from all over Latin America. And uh, the advantage is that they have the, the key players, as I said, and they can do it at their own pace. It's, yes. it's, for, it's for individuals that are working, really. Right. Fantastic. And don't have the time to, to go. And, and so it was, it was very good. Well, speaking of not having the time, I'm sure you're a very busy man. So I thank you for taking the 25 minutes with us and uh, sharing your insights on the region. No, Brian, thank you very, very much for the invitation and uh, hope we can meet in person soon. Absolutely.